Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and I am back with you after a short break, and we're talking about the gods. Um, I've done, in the past, like a deity series where I discussed um, some mythologies of different Greek goddesses and gods, and I have discussed uh, the Wiccan god briefly um, in some Q&A episodes and also in my episode on witchcraft and the devil, but I never really talked about the god and goddess of Wicca in particular. Um, so that's what this episode is going to be about. So I think it's important to note that I am not really talking about eclectic Wicca, and that's not to say that eclectic forms of Wicca are not valid. It's just to say that that's not what I practice, and I don't really feel comfortable speaking to what I don't know. So um, in a generic way, this is going to be from the perspective of um, traditional initiatory coven-based Wicca, um, what some people call British traditional Wicca. And of course, I don't mean to speak for the entire religion or for any uh, particular tradition or coven. Um, This is kind of just a general information. So... With that being said, um, Wiccan views on deity are very diverse, and it's kind of hard to pinpoint what Wiccans believe, because as I've said before, the religion of Wicca is more about what you do and not as much about what you believe. And because of that, um, the personal theologies of individual Wiccans isn't really super emphasized. Um, But with that being said, it's pretty universal to say that traditional Wicca honors both a goddess and a god, but the way that practitioners choose to conceptualize them varies a lot. So um, these gods are kind of a staple in all forms of Wicca, but like, who are they? How are they important? Why are they revered in Wicca? So generally speaking, the goddess and the god are said to be equal and opposite to each other. They are peaceful, coexisting polar forces. They are not in conflict with each other. The goddess is said to represent love and peace, and as the great mother, she's the giver of love and life to all things. It's from her womb that everything emerged, and it is to her that all things return to. She is the lady of the moon, the queen of heaven, the ruler of the earth, and her domain is the sky, the land, and the sea. Many names have kind of been attributed to her over time, but in most forms of traditional Wicca, her true name is not revealed until a seeker has been initiated into the mysteries. And likewise, the god is said to represent the relationship of humanity and the natural world. He represents the wild, untamed aspects of nature and is a protector of plants and animals. And for these reasons, artistic depictions of him usually show him as having either antlers or horns and sometimes hooves and goat legs, and he is said to be the lord of life, death, and rebirth, presiding over the cycles of reincarnation. He protects the living, and in death, guides our souls back to the goddess to be born once again. He is also the lord of the underworld, keeping the company of spirits and ghosts. And just like the goddess is the birther of all life, it is the god's seed in the womb of the earth that gives life to everything as well. So it is the union of the goddess and the god that gives life to the universe. And in a similar vein as the goddess, in forms of traditional Wicca, the god's true name is not revealed until you have been initiated. So it's important to note here as well that Wicca is a syncretic faith, meaning that its deities are often thought of as encompassing the aspects of 
many other goddesses and gods. So for this reason, um, many Wiccans, not all, but many Wiccans often see other deities as being manifestations of the great goddess and the great god, just that they are manifesting themselves through the lens of a particular culture or time in history. So if you ever heard like a Wiccan say that all goddesses are the goddess or that all gods are the god, they're kind of talking about this. Um, and not everyone feels that way, of course, but there are many Wiccans that kind of say like, oh, any deity across time. So if that's uh, Hecate or Caridwen or Isis, for example, that those are actually all the same goddess, the goddess, that it is just how they were interpreted by those cultures, respectively, um, if that makes sense as an example. So it's not common to see kind of different names plugged in for the goddess or the god as people choose, um, especially in forms of like eclectic Wicca, just because um, eclectic Wicca came about because when Wicca was brought from the United Kingdom to the United States, there were not enough teachers to train people and bring them into covens. There was more demand than there was supply. So that's when the outer court process started. So that kind of general information could be shared without violating sacred oaths. That way you could kind of be trained somewhat remotely before you were initiated. And because of that, and then the books that came out of that. So think, you know, Raven Wolf, Ferrars, uh, Scott Cunningham, etc. They um, use these gener like general generic names of the goddess and god um, to avoid sharing their secret oath-bound names. So that's where we hear a lot of like the god and the goddess, the mother and the father, the lord and the lady. A lot of that comes from that type of stuff. And I think over time, as Wicca has changed and evolved, and especially as eclecticism has kind of gained a lot of momentum um those general names kind of became their real names to a lot of people and that's not to say that their secret oath-bound names aren't true and valid for those that practice that way because it certainly is but um for those that maybe can't be initiated or have no desire to be initiated it's become more or less commonplace to kind of just insert the name of a deity that you feel drawn to and that is your goddess and your god um that is not my perspective in particular, but it is of many people, and I respect that. So a lot of names I've heard in circulation for the goddess have been uh, Diana, who is the Roman goddess of the hunt and the moon and the wilderness. Um, she's kind of the Roman counterpart of Artemis. She was associated with Selene and with Hecate somewhat as well um, as a triple goddess. And in... Charles Godfrey Leland's book, The Gospel of Radia, um, Diana is said to be the goddess of witches with her brother and consort Lucifer. Um, another name, of course, is Hecate. She's the Greek goddess of the crossroads of magic and witchcraft. Um, and because of lunar associations, like I said a moment ago, she has be kind of become associated with Selene, um, with Artemis, with Diana, and you get it. Um, another one is Caridwen. She is a Welsh goddess of magic. She's said to be the Dark Mother, um, and she's the keeper of the Cauldron of Wisdom. And then Isis, um, an Egyptian goddess. And I think that Isis has a lot of validity <laughs> kind of to the claim of this title just because, you know, she's said to be the goddess of a thousand faces and a thousand names. Um, 
and her cults of worship spread from Egypt to the Greco-Roman world to the Norse parts of the world um, through most of Europe. It, her cult was very, very widespread, um, kind of in the Alexandrian heyday. And I mean, Alexandrian is in relating to Egypt, not uh, Alexandrian Wicca in this case. Um, so those are some popular names I've heard used for the goddess and for the god, uh, Kernanos, who was the Celtic god of like nature and wilderness. And then, of course, Pan, um, who is the kind of Greek god of the wild. He was said to be either the son of Hermes or perhaps an aspect of Hermes, depending on the scholar you agree with. Um, and then, of course, Osiris, because of his associations with the underworld and rebirth. Um, and likewise, with the Greek god Hades as well as Bacchus, who was kind of the Roman counterpart to the Greek pan. So, um, as I mentioned before, how individual Wiccans conceptualize these figures varies a lot. So some Wiccans might choose to honor the Wiccan gods only, like they're going to worship the Wiccan goddess and god, and that's all they do. Um, some instead might choose to acknowledge the Wiccan gods as well as the worship of other deities from other pantheons. So this is where you hear... Oh, like I have my Wiccan altar, you know, to the goddess and the god, but I also work with, you know, the Morrigan or Aphrodite or whoever else, you know, deities from other non-Wiccan spaces as well. Um, and some also, there's a distinction between hard and soft polytheism. So hard polytheism is believing that each deity is separate and distinct and is its own entity unto itself so like if you have an altar to the wiccan goddess and wiccan god but also an altar to caridwen and also another one to kernanos you don't see the wiccan god and kernanos as being the same force that's just manifesting differently you see them as being separate and distinct they're not related to each other they're not the same deity manifesting itself different ways. Like that is, they are their own entities. Um, and likewise, the same way, if you have like the Wiccan goddess over here and then Caridwen on her own altar, you would see them as being separate and distinct from each other if you were a hard polytheist. Um, on the other hand, soft polytheism is acknowledging that the gods might choose to manifest different ways. So if I have an experience with Kernanos and then Hades and then Osiris, I ultimately believe that all of them are just manifestations of the God still, but it's still important to acknowledge them in the way they choose to express themselves. So that's what's called soft polytheism. You're going to acknowledge the individual names and aspects, but you believe they're emanating from the same place. Um, and there are some Wiccans as well that um, they don't view the gods as being literal. They think that they are either like a thought form like an egregore type thing. Um, they're a projection of psychic energy and they've taken on a life of their own because people believe in them. Others might think that there are no gods at all, that gods aren't real. They might think that um, the gods are a psychological manifestation of humanity's relationship with nature. So as they worship, quote, worship the gods and then work through their rituals, they're doing it in a way that is symbolic and psychological, and they're not viewing the gods as literally existing. Um, and that's kind of why within Wicca, someone might be monotheist or polytheist or monist or panentheist or atheist even. Um, 
and this is just kind of scratching the surface of this, of course, it's much more nuanced and complicated than I really have time to address in a 30 minute episode. But I hope this gives you some insight as to why the Wiccan view of divinity is very complicated. It's not really the same as like, oh, you're Christian, so you're monotheist, or you know, you're a Hellenistic pagan, so you're a polytheist. Like it's it's not quite as cut and dry um like that. So The Wiccan gods have a lot, of course, of opinions on them beyond just like their names, what their names might be or things like that. There's a lot of different perspectives on even kind of their roles. Um, Like some Wiccans don't believe the gods to be all powerful. They think that they only gain power because people believe in them or that they gain power when we conduct rituals that honor them. Um, there are some that believe that the the gods are completely all-powerful and omniscient and that they are like these primal cosmic forces and that they would exist and be powerful regardless of whether or not they had followers or believers or anything like that. Um, so I think it's easy to say, even just from these um, past few minutes, that it's a really complicated topic. It's not really universally agreed upon um, because even within one tradition or even within one coven, um, the views on divinity are very, very diverse. Um, I know in my case, I do not have the same perspective on divinity as my priest and priestess. And I also don't think they have the same perspective as each other. So, and that's okay. That's, that's totally allowed and permitted and kind of expected within Wicca. Um, Wicca doesn't really require you to have a certain particular belief to participate. So you are encouraged to experience the gods in your own way and develop your own thoughts and feelings about them. So let's talk about the triple goddess because I've noticed that this kind of can be a point of confusion for some people. I know this confused me for a number of years so it's really common in eclectic Wiccan spaces, especially online, to hear, you know, the triple goddess. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Um, but that's not really the way that she was described in early Wiccan texts. Um, that's not really how Gerald Gardner described her Um other early Wiccan authors like Drain Valiente, etc., they didn't really refer to her that way. And again, there's nothing wrong with thinking of her as being a triple goddess if that resonates with you again, because Wicca is about experiencing the divine for yourself. So if you think of them that way, that's totally fine. And the reason this triple goddess association came out is because of Robert Graves. Um, and Robert Graves really popularized this idea of um, triple goddess. He was um, a poet and kind of a historical novelist. And he really, along with his father, um, kind of contributed to like the survival of cult mythology, excuse me, not cults, of Celtic mythology in Ireland. And he is the one that um, really wrote the triple goddess thing and got that 
to be kind of popularized in pagan spaces. Um, so the triple aspect comes from the idea that the goddess is the mother, the maiden, and the crone. The mother being kind of the peak of adult womanhood. Um, she's fertile. She's giving birth. Um, she's able to conceive, etc. The maiden is the young girl. Um, she's childlike and she's innocent. She's hopeful and her whole life's ahead of her. And then the crone is, you know, the older woman who is beyond her childbearing years, but she's wise and she's powerful. And the goddess is said to be all three of those. Um, I have not met any traditional Wiccans that really think of her that way. Again, nothing wrong with it if you do. But I think um, even though she may not be revered as a triple goddess in a literal sense, I think there's still an acknowledgement that all of those things are within her. And that's why I don't really have a problem with people saying that she is a triple goddess. Um, but it's really interesting because various like triple goddesses or deities um, have kind of been a part of a lot of different cultures and religions. So well-known examples would be um, Jadevi, who's a Hindu goddess, um, the Graces, also called the Charities, and the Hore, meaning the Seasons. Um, they were from Greek culture. And of course, the Fates were called the Moirai as well. And some deities often depicted as singular included triple aspects as well. Um, for example, Hera, the Greek goddess of marriage, family, and motherhood, was worshipped as the girl, the woman, and the widow. So even though this concept of triple goddess is relatively recent, according to like the kind of the idea laid out by Robert Graves, there is historical precedent for it as well. So Hecate, who I won't get super involved in just because she has her own episode already, but um, according to Robert Graves, Hecate was the original and the most prominent ancient, ancient triple moon goddess. She was represented in triple form from the early days of her worship. And Diana slash Artemis also came to be viewed as a trinity of three goddesses in one, which were viewed as distinct aspects of a single divine being. Diana the Huntress, Diana the Moon, and Diana of the Underworld. Additional examples of Hecate viewed as triple goddess associated with witchcraft include uh, Lucan's Tale of a Group of Witches, written in the first century BCE, and the witches, uh, the witches, what? The witches <laughs> speak of Persephone, who is the third and lowest aspect of our goddess Hecate. Another is found in Ovid's Metamorphosis, in which the hero Jason swears an oath to the witch Medea, saying that he would be true by the sacred rites of the threefold goddess. Um, so needless to say, even though there's varying opinions, and even if you believe in a triple goddess, you might get some flack from other Wiccans, especially do your own thing. You experience divinity in the way that you are meant to, in a way that resonates with you and with your spirit. And if the triple goddess is how you feel, that's fine. And there's pretty substantial historical precedent for that to be a valid expression. Um, let's talk about the god as well before we wrap up the episode today. So the horned god, of course, is the masculine aspect of the divine in Wicca and in other forms of paganism. Um, and he is said to sometimes have a triple aspect uh, as well. So 
he is said to be the union of the divine and the animal. And he's usually regarded as dualistic or having two aspects, the bright and the dark, the night and day, the summer and winter, the oak king and the holly king. And in this dualistic view, his two horns symbolize his dual nature. Um, and the three aspects of the goddess and the two aspects of the god are said to form the five points of the pentagram. Um, but there are some triple aspects to the god as well. So just like the goddess is said to be mother, maiden, and crone, the god is said to be the father, the warrior, the sage. Um, and it's kind of what it sounds like. The warrior is, you know, the young man um, was very physical and aggressive and motivated. The father, of course, is said to be a little bit more wiser and compassionate um, and is a similar... I don't want to say age because they don't age in the way that humans do, but a similar metaphorical age as the mother would be in the goddess aspect. And the sage would be kind of like the wise uh, older man, kind of the masculine equivalent of the crone. So he has associations with plant life and animals, of course, but also as the sun um, with the goddess relating to the moon. And then he has underworld associations as well. And this is where we get links to Pan and more so to Hermes as being a psychopomp who is escorting the souls of the dead to the underworld. And that is also something that we got from Doreen Valiente. Um, and this is also where we see that the wheel of the year is sometimes divided into parts that like two halves. So you'll see people say like, oh, the wheel of the year, you know, this half is ruled by the goddess. This half is ruled by the god. Um, my take on that is that they are both present all the time. There is not a single part of the year where they're not both equally present, but there might be a time of the year where you notice that you were more drawn to one over the other. So the time of the goddess is said to begin... Um, kind of uh, soon, actually, at Beltane. So um, the May festival and the Wheel of the Year is supposed to be the beginning of like the goddess time. And then it reaches its peak at the summer solstice in the middle of June. And then it would kind of gradually recede until it kind of comes to an end um, at the August festival. And then the season of the god would begin, of course, at the August festival. And it would carry on through the September... Um, Actually, it began at the September festival. It would carry on through Samhain and Yule, and then you get the idea. It would just repeat. Um, there's a lot of overlap, and there's some gaps, and there's some different perspectives on that. Um, the way I think of it personally is that it's not really about goddess and god or masculine and feminine. It's more about the type of energy that's active at that point. Um, you know, you have the lighter half of the year. It's about fertility and birth, and it's a literal birth. Like animals are reproducing and having babies, plants are springing up and growing, um, things like that. And I think that speaks to a receptive type of energy. Um, and then the opposite of that would be in the darker half of the year where you're acknowledging hibernation and death. Um, because back in ancient times, the reason Samhain was associated with death was because they didn't have grocery stores or food preservation or anything like that. They had to eat what they grew. So you have all these animals that are born in the spring and the summer, but now it's fall and winter's coming. And if you only have the food that you have, you can't 
keep all of those animals and survive the winter. So you would have to slaughter some of the animals and able to be able to survive through the cold time. So that's why Samhain has become associated with death is because it's that symbolic honoring of the things that had to die so that life could continue. Um, but that is all I have for you today. Um, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at magic underscore and underscore the underscore moon at Instagram. That's M-A-G-I-C-K. And you can also email me at magic and the moon podcast at gmail.com. And again, that's M-A-G-I-C-K. But that's all I have for you. And I will see you all next time.